Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., a host of the channel, and today we will be talking with Dr. Danielle Ross about her new book, Tatar Empire, Kazan's Muslims and the Making of Imperial Russia, published this year by Indiana University Press. Professor Ross is an assistant professor of Asian history at Utah State University, where she teaches pre-modern and modern Islamic history. Before going to Utah State, she taught Islamic and Central Asian history at Nazarbayev University in Nur-Sultan, Kazakhstan, and she earned her PhD in Central Asian history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Danielle, welcome to the show. Hi. So, uh, Danielle, to begin, I just was wondering if you could tell us how you got interested in Central Asia and specifically uh, how you started to research um, the the Kazan Muslims that that feature so prominently in your book. So I am going to completely blame Steve Batalden and the Russian and Soviet history folks at Arizona State University for all of this. Uh, as a freshman, I wanted to travel abroad. I didn't have the money to do it. And um, they told me that I could take a foreign language in the summer and use that language to apply for a scholarship from the government to study in another country. And one of those languages was Tatar. I didn't know what Tatar was. But I'm like, okay, I'll sign up for this. And I was about 18 or 19. And I started taking the Arizona State summer Tatar program. And uh, over two years, I found I really fell in love with the language. And also, I started to get learn about the culture and the, the literature. Then, well, my senior year um, undergraduate, I went to Kazan. I studied at Kazan's, now it's Kazan Federal University, for um, two semesters. And I came back and I was like, I want to do this in grad school. I'd like to study this further. So it was sort of serendipitous. Um, I'd made a lot of random choices, I think, when I was quite young. And then I ended up sort of following up on them. Uh, how did I come to like this period in particular? I mean, when I was in graduate school, this is sort of where much of the discussion was and still is. Um, Islamic, Islamic reform, uh, the role of Muslims within the empire, and so I think it was just sort of natural as a graduate student that I flowed into that discourse. Um, if we, if I get to talk at the end a little bit about projects I'm working on now, I'm trying to flow back out of the discourse. But I think that's how I got into the specific topic that became this book. Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, way to s- kind of segue into the conversation about the book. So um, you mentioned that the kind of uh, discourse that's going on right now is set at this, I guess, like, 19th century, early 20th century um, exploration of, of, you know, something like Muslim, uh, the Muslim reform movement or something like that. So could you could you just kind of give us a, a kind of background scene of what 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 does this conversation look like? What are the major transformations that we're seeing in your book? And uh, what other kind of background knowledge is important for understanding the significance of this um, Kazan uh, Islamic elite that that you you talk about in the book? So um, tried to do this in a thumbnail sketch. Uh, the Muslims of broadly Russia and the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union really come into Western historical scholarship in English 
in the mid 20th century from the 1960s to about the 1980s. And the stars of this show, given um, you know, the relative lack of sources in, at the time because of Soviet Union and the, the difficulty of getting into the archives, um, the stars of this new sort of history become this small group of mostly male uh, Muslim reformers working in the roughly the 1880s. You could be generous and try to push that back to the 1860s through the 1920s. Uh, you have a, a number of authors, um, historians, most notably Alexander Benningson, uh, Edward Allworth, uh, uh, Edward Lazzarini, uh, by the 1980s, uh, Aisha Rorlick, who are all kind of focused on studying this small group of intellectuals. And again, at the time, this is in part a function of sources. You can get to these people's memoirs and letters in a way that, as an historian, you could not get to broader sources on social history. By the time I entered grad school in the early 2000s, we'd been through the 1990s and the imperial turn in Russian-Soviet history. So uh, by then, the discussion has moved from, well, look at these Muslims doing interesting things, and Muslims maybe fighting against um, the Russian Empire, to um, a bigger, on the one side, a big dis bigger discussion of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union weren't as bad as we thought for non-Russians that they lived and they actually worked within the empire and later the so in Soviet society. Um, and then on the other side, uh, you have scholars like Alan Frank and Michael Kemper and Agnes Kefeli beginning to unearth all of this material about Muslims within uh, Russian society that is not about male reform reformers trying to quote unquote modernize society in the early 19th and 20th century. Um, <clears throat> And so I sort of entered at that point where you had in the, the discussion where you had these two sides really um, in conflict. Uh, those people that really wanted to talk about nation and about modernity and the subjects that had, had been part of the original scholarly discourse on Muslims in the Russian Empire versus those people who wanted to talk about religion and social history and maybe a bit more about imperial relations, um, <clears throat> but, step, but specifically, as Devin DeWeese would say, you know, wanting to send the Muslim reformers to the Jadids on vacation, quote-unquote, so they could look at other aspects of Muslim history in Russian and Soviet space. So I kind of came in in the middle of that debate, and that's, I've struggled with this as I've written this book. It's kind of, my dissertation was about the nationalism I then started working with the Islam a lot. Uh, and then the, the imperial story was always there, kind of floating over my head. Uh, and so what I've tried to do in this book is to navigate all of those questions. How did, the, how did Kazan Muslims get in the empire? What was their history really about, especially in the 19th and 20th century? Um, and then what was the relationship to this larger, obviously non-Muslim state within which they were living? Yeah, that's great. And it, it, I think you did a good job of kind of uh, describing some of these, you know, I don't know if we want to call them hot topics, but, um, you know, these kind of trends that we see, the certain questions that people kind of fixate on. And I think it's good to see, you know, um, people moving, you know, scholars moving beyond that. But I am curious, um, 
about about the research you did. So you had these kind of questions in mind. Um, I'm curious, like, what kind of research you did? Where did you go? I noticed um, in the bibliography that, you know, you have a collection, you have archival sources, you have manuscript collections, you also use uh, a number of published sources. Um, did finding these sources, doing this kind of archival work pose any unique challenges? Um, you know, it's kind of nice to sit down and talk to the author because we can we can ask things like this. So I'm I'm curious about your experience overall doing doing the research. Uh, again, I think I entered the field at a rather fortuitous moment. Um, that by the time I started doing the research, um, a lot of stuff had been published, and so I really either in the late Soviet period from the 1980s and then going into the 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, so a lot of my early research was just done by going through complete works of various Tatar authors um, and then scholarship that was coming out at the time in um, both in Kazan and back in the United States. Uh, by the early 2000s, a lot of um, the Tatar newspapers, not all of them, but a lot of them were microformed. Uh, so also my early research is really done on the grounds in, in the United States. And once I went over to, uh, to Kazan and during my, uh, during my doctoral research, there's already a lot of stuff I had read I had come to. Now, the problem was, of course, once you get to Kazan, you begin to realize that the sources people like to use to write about this topic, and those are the same sources, some of them have been published now, are sort of the tip of the iceberg. And then a lot of the other sources that you would like to get to are in no particularly good order. Um, and this was a challenge I ran into when I got to Kazan. There were books, I was very, it was very easy to read published material, obviously in Cyrillic. I got better at reading in the Arabic script. My paleography skills were nil. So if you read my dissertation and you read my book, one thing you'll notice is that I have a lot of manuscript material in the book that was not in the, um, the dissertation. And this was one, kind of one of my biggest challenges was just learning to read the handwriting, as, as silly as that sounds. The other was learning to navigate the manuscript collections because still they're more cataloged than they were, say, in 2000 or 1995, but they're still far from being completely cataloged. So a big challenge in this project was, I think, the first figuring out what the sort of well-trodden sources were, mastering those, and then going, like, I want more information on this. Where can I find it? Or I've got this weird source, and I hope my book doesn't reflect this too much, but I have this weird source that tells me a lot of stuff, but it doesn't fit anywhere with what I'm doing. How does this fit into my bigger story? So, um, you know, source, sources have been a big thing, and I'm still really working on kind of building out my sort of mental map of what this intellectual world looked like. Yeah, those are some real challenges that I think, you know, many historians face. So, um, you know, even you said it's kind of funny that, you know, uh, that you, you had to spend time learning how to read this handwriting. But I think that makes a lot of sense, you know, um, looking at the, I mean, yeah, maybe that's one reason I've chosen to choose kind of a later period to research, but um, it is a difficult challenge, so it's, it's certainly commendable. If, if I may add, um, if I can add just one other thing about the source base as well. Um, yeah, please. I think I had sort of an aha moment already when I was 
just had recently defended my dissertation, uh, I was up in Orenburg in the summer working in sort of a private collection in the mosque in uh, around the district of Orenburg. And, you know, uh, Gofred de Hanum, who I, th- I think has passed, she's a wonderful woman. Um, she was going, she was bringing out, this is boxes of manuscripts for me to go through, manuscripts and old printed books. And I was getting, starting to get really irritated because I'm going through and it's just one copy of Muhammadiyah and Yusuf Kitabah, they're these sort of um, Islamic, Sufi, Hoanic texts, one copy after another. And I'm just thinking, like, when do I get to the real sources? Uh, and then one Islamic law manual after another. And it took me a while, I think, to come around to the fact that it's like, wait, these are the sources, right? And, you know, Agnes Capelli much earlier had been working with these, and I never really understood what she did. And then it sort of clicked with me right then. But instead of trying to look for sources that weren't there, I need to start using the sources that were. Um, and I needed to start understanding how to read those sources better than I really knew how to in grad school. And so there's a wealth of sources on Islamic law, theology, and I think especially in the in the Volga region, they're quite underused. Central Asian historians, I think, have gotten a bit better about using them. And now we have some um, some scholars, I mean, I would name Nathan Spanis, Rosalie Karipova, definitely Ildus Zagidulin off the top of my head, who are working now with these religious, these Islamic sources in a broad sense. But I think that was another huge challenge, was figuring out, you know, what is this law manual? How do I read it? Right? Um, and so that was that was another challenge in doing this. And I think that's a way in which the book ended up very different from the dissertation, as it began to bring that material in in a much more substantive way. Yeah, I mean, I think you raised a good point that, you know, um, a lot of people, you know, sometimes scholars are kind of waiting to find that kind of golden piece of, of uh, source material and, you know, it might never come. So I think I think that you raise a good point by saying that it, we actually need to shift uh, our reading of sources often to, to get more out of them instead of waiting for some kind of magical key that, that opens up, um, you know, answers the questions we, we hope to answer, you know. I think that's a good point. Um, and so I, I kind of want to get a little bit more into the book now, um, because the book actually uh, traces kind of the the intersection between the Kazan Tatar ulama's uh, participation in Russian expansion or you know Russian imperial expansion, but it also looks at their emergence as leaders of of a distinct ethno confessional community. And your narrative starts in the late 17th century and takes us up to uh, 1917. But I, I, you know, the the first thing that's most striking is is the title Tatar Empire. Um, I think people, you know, I think people are going to see this, and I think it's a good title because it's going to uh, it 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 immediately co- calls into question some of the things we assume about the Russian Empire. So I'm just curious, uh, what what was the purpose of using this title, and how does it reflect your broader arguments? Um, I use this title. Um to really tie the book into a different historiography in some ways than Tatars usually get placed. And that's um, kind of a broader historiography of, um, of colonial empire beyond the, um, beyond the Russian empire and the status of sort of these conquered or 
annexed groups within those colonial empires. So I sort of had, I'm riffing off of um, Pekka Lenin's Comanche Empire uh, in kind of crafting that title. Uh, and yeah, the, as you point out, the purpose of it is to get people to think about what the role of the not, of non-Russians and not just the Tatars in not only the creation of the Russian Empire, but even in the Soviet Union, in Russia today, really was. And the the title has two purposes, uh, or rather two meanings. On one hand, it um, it's meant to reflect the fact that Tatars actually do build at least this little part of the empire. Uh, that their intermediaries, their translators, their settlers, their merchants, they're doing all the activities that need to happen for the Russian state in Moscow and then St. Petersburg to be able to claim these territories uh, in the Urals and um, uh, what's now kind of northern Kazakhstan and uh, part of western China. Uh, and the Tatars aren't the only people that are doing this. You can talk about the Armenians and the Georgians and the Baltic Germans and the, the sort of Indian merchants that Scott Levi described in his work. Uh, there's a number of these even the Jews, there's some arguments to be made about kind of how they're creating the empire in the Soviet Union, at least in certain areas. So um, that's one thing that this book is meant to, the title's meant to reflect, that the Russian empire is not just about Russians. This is an empire that involves all, the process of creating it involves all these people, and these non-Russians are not just passengers along for the ride or victims of this conquest. On the other hand, I wanted to reflect the fact that as the empire's developing and certain Tatar elites are taking part in the imperial process, they sort of begin to adopt the views of the empire. And by that, I don't just mean that they start to see themselves as part of this Russian imperial unit, but that they take those values back home and begin to use them in reorganizing their own world. And this especially comes up in the latter part of the book where you see their uh, the discussion of kind of Tatar sort of ranking peoples is that they're there at the top and the Kazakhs and the Bashkirs are somewhere at the bottom of sort of the civilizational ladder. Um, in 1918, 1917, 1918, as Tatars tried to kind of, a certain group tries to push forward a vision of Russia's Muslims where they are going to be at the top and then everyone, all the others will sort of look to them for leadership in the post-imperial period. So that's the second meaning of this is that the Tatars are they're in two empires. They're in the Russian Empire, and then they're sort of in their own sort of smaller regional ethnic space that they have created. And what I'm hoping to do with this is to sort of push back on people that say, why do we study Tatars or Chuvashes or Uzbeks, right? This is about Russian history and Soviet history, and that's a story that happens in Petersburg and Moscow, and mostly with ethnic Russians. Um, yeah, I, I'm glad you made that point because you know here you know this this channel is uh, dedicated to Central Asian studies, and um, it, it's really nice to hear a scholar saying you know um, we need to study the the Central Asian or you know uh, non ethnic Russian perspectives and also um, really seriously engage in the sources uh, in the same way that we do with you know Mos you know voices from Moscow or voices from Saint Peter. Uh, Petersburg, um, 
And and I'm wondering if you're just willing to share a little bit more about what you know what's to be gained from studying Central Asia or these non-ethnic uh, kind of Russian parts of the former empire, such as your uh, Volga uh, Ural region. Well, I think first of all, and this is a place where it helps to be a Central Asian scholar stuck in the middle of the, you know the United States and a university that does mostly U.S. history. Um, Demographically, the world is changing. The United States is changing. Russia is changing. Um, and this is a discussion we've been having in the U.S. for a long time is how can you have a history that's all about sort of white Protestant upper middle class and wealthy men uh, for a country that may soon be or will soon be, you know, non-majority Anglo-American. Uh, and so suddenly, you know, you have your teaching to people to students and children and reaching out to audiences who consider themselves part of the United States, but are not necessarily part of that story. And this is where you really see kind of African-American history, Latinx history, Native American history, Asian American history, women's history, LGBTQ history coming to the fore. And I think Russia, and there are lots of reasons politically internally why this is the case for their own historians, but Russia is really behind on that. And even though they're going through these same processes of demographic change. Uh, and I think as you move ahead a generation or two generations, it's important kind of to be for, I'm not saying I'm doing this for Russians, but I think, you know, we, there needs to be, there need to be narratives that talk about what, where these other people fit. And I think that's one thing that we get from studying Central Asia or from studying minor, even more so from studying quote unquote minority groups that live still within the boundaries of the Russian Federation is we're beginning to be able to put together a history that includes these people and speaks to these people rather than this rather cold, this cold history of the capital sort of coming out and doing things and of ethnic Russia being ethnic Russia. Um, once you give these people a voice in history, I think that reflects that reflects on their treatment in the present as well. It becomes harder just to sort of shove them under the rug. Um, and I'm not trying to, pl again, place this mission on myself. Um, but I think in the United States, as people who teach these subjects, by teaching students that Russia is all about Russians, we sort of reinforce the negative narratives and often chauvinist narratives that are coming out of Russia. So I think that's a major thing that is to be gained uh, by taking this approach. What a brilliant answer. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I'm going... I'll definitely be listening to that again um so i i, I kind of want to shift the conversation a little bit and and get into some of the details you know because you're talking about um the the role of the kazan based ulema um and the and their role in kind of early you know i mean this whole period, but looking at the way that they participated in this kind of imperial project. And so you, you mentioned things, you know, you mentioned that they're tasked with things like admonishing the local uh, Bashkirs to not steal livestock from the Kazakhs. And, you know, this is early on, but I'm curious, like, how, how did the Russian Empire, specifically under Catherine, uh, make use of the Kazan ulema in the 18th century? And how did this relationship between uh, this local group of elites and the Russian Empire become institutionalized? Well, um, we like in Russian history, we like to talk about Kazan as sort of Russia's first empire. It's the first place that Russia really 
takes the first time they take over a large population of really non-Slavic, non-Orthodox Christian people. And there's something about, there's a long relationship between Kazan and Muscovy before this, and there are lots of Tatars in service to Muscovy before 1552. So by the time you get to the late 17th and early 18th century, Tatars are sort of safe Muslims. And Tatar is kind of a difficult, I'm using that in a different way from the modern sense. I'm saying, you know, Muslim, Turkic-speaking servitors that are probably originating in the Volga region, often around Kazan, um, and then are being drawn into service. So uh, in the 18th century, as the Russian state is looking out for intermediaries, the quote-unquote Tatars, or Kazansky Tatari, make a sort of, begin to be increasingly sort of seen as the safe intermediary. They kind of, they can talk to Russian, Russia and Russian officials, but they can also go out and they can talk to these sort of wild Bashkirs and Kazakhs um, and others who share a language and kind of share a religion, but they're nomadic and they're even geographically much further removed um, from sort of the Russian heartlands. And so that seems to be how they're tasked with this. And you have local administrators who go out and form individual relationships. And this is where I'm really trying to push back on Robert Cruz and for Prophet and Tsar is I don't see a moment where suddenly everybody goes, hey, let's work together. Um, I also don't see sort of a policy or on either side. This is very much about people going out to from the capital to the borderlands forming relationships with individuals in the borderlands that they seem to be able to trust or find common ground with and moving forward. And many of those individuals happen to be um, the what we call these Kazan Tatars. And, and from the Kazan Tatars perspective, like what, what was to be gained in, in kind of coordinating with, with these individuals and, and kind of going along with, with the goals of the state? Well, this is that great fatwa that needs to get translated, and it's not really a fatwa, it's more of a tenji, that needs to get translated into English and still hasn't been. Um, the, uh, Alfred Bustanov had uh, unearthed. Um, anyway, this fatwa by Yunus um, Benivanai sets out the entire problem. This is about 1680s, maybe 1690s. Uh, he says, you know, do we work with, can we work with the Russian state? And it's, oh, it, it's, it's a double-edged sword. If you work with the Russian state, you know, as a community, you get benefits for that. Then you, you are seen as trustworthy. You are able to keep running your mosques. Uh, economically, you are able to take advantage of new situations. If you're a, a Muslim trader going out and you're kind of endorsed by the Russian state, you can rely on Russian officials to maybe bail you out of some sticky places. Um, if you are settlers and you're going out to create a new village, you can kind of piggyback on the Russian advance and then you have people to protect your land. Uh, also for missionaries, and this is going on through the entire 18th century, as the Russians move east, the Tatar missionaries move east with some converting people to Islam. And that's not supposed to be happening, but it sort of provides this overall administrative cover for that to be happening. So I think there are a lot of things that Muslims can get by working for the Russian state. The downside is that they are serving an infidel state. It's not Muslim. Uh, that's, you know, their jobs may put them in positions where they're having to take up arms against other Muslims or turn other Muslims over to the state for 
uh, for punishment. And there is always, of course, the risk that at some point things sour and the Russian state turns against you or you end up turning against the Russian state because somehow its policies are now impinging on your religion or your property or your community. So it's a bit of a gamble, but there's there's the promise of economic, um, you know, as economic gain of being able to look for power and of even being able to really continue to protect and expand Islam. So I think that's why you have some of these people that go over and surf. Yeah, and I'm curious. So after this initial period where you have kind of this uh, settler movement, um, how does you know? I'm 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 interested in in your um, discussion of the Orenburg Muslim Spiritual Assembly and and how this um, kind of relationship between these groups um, evolves over time, both institutionally and I guess in in more of a non-official sphere of trade and and um, you know you talk about um, uh, the publication of of texts, you know, the this, you know, the, the publishing industry, I suppose, kind of takes off during this, you know, a little bit later as well. So, how does you know what causes these these um, institutions to arise? And and you know, I, I guess there are a number of factors, but I'm curious specifically, um, I guess starting with the Orenburg Muslim Spiritual Assembly, how does that change? Uh, this, these dynamics between the state and, and these, you know, elite based in Kazan? Well, I think you have to actually go back a bit further than that. And that's why my book starts in the 16, 1670s, 1680s. Um, you have, we talk about kind of 1552 as really the dividing point, but it's not. Um, and Matt, Matthew Romanillo has covered this well in Elusive Empire. You have a lot of Muslims that are still in service. The aristocracy is still functioning, as Nathan Spanis recently pointed out, they seem to be still collecting Muslim taxes, like land taxes, in and around Kazan, um, like into the 17th century. What happens in the late se- late 17th century under Alexei Mihailovich, or sorry, under, um, yeah, under Alexei Mihailovich, and then later under Peter the Great, is that you have the centralization of the Russian state. Part of that involves ultimately um, the sort of disempowerment of the old aristocracy. So the, at the late 1600s through about Catherine the Great is this period of flux where old elites are losing their power and it gives opportunity for these, these new elites, many of them, these ulema, to rise into a position of power. Um, and they do that again through those relationships as intermediaries. You get now to the Orenburg Spiritual Assembly and it's a weird sort of, to me, it's a weird animal because to me, I see on one side, this set of local relationships that bring together eventually this institution. Um, and you have people on the ground in Orenburg and Kazan that are thinking very locally about what this institution is going to do. On the other side, you have Catherine who is very interested at, I would argue in international relations with other Muslims in the region, not so much in giving the Tatars any sort of institution or center uh, to look to. And to me, that's the, that's the tension built into the spiritual assembly from its start. Um, these emerging ulema want this to be kind of a new sort of anchor for their community. Now that the old anchors, the aristocracy, sort of the Chinggis and Mongol history, those disappeared 
really by the middle of the 18th century, um, even the Qasim Hanit, have all are now all defunct. Um, and the spiritual assembly in Oren, uh, the Orenburg spiritual assembly, which is most of the time not in Orenburg, confusingly, is the thing that they now can kind of rally around. For the state, the state, the Russian state, I think, starts out with this international relations view in the 18th century. By the 19th century, they begin to move, they really moved more toward the spiritual assembly as a way of communicating to the, the Muslims in the Volga Ural region and also to some degree as a mechanism of social control. Um, <clears throat> but you have that sort of back and forth, and you see it again in the 1880s to the 19-teens, is the you know, Tatars really kind of want the spiritual assembly as their thing. The Russian state is sort of using it as their thing. So, um, I mean, that's what I would say about what that, that does. And again, that comes back to this broader tension, is the Tatars are part of this big empire and serving this empire and have risen because of the expansion of this empire. At the same time, they're building their own community and the sort of priorities of the empire and the priorities of the ethnic, ethno-confessional community do not always run parallel um, to one another. And then we get into kind of the 19th century when we see uh, another series of, of major changes happening to this community. Um, you, you mentioned colonial trade, uh, for instance, has a huge impact on the Kazan Muslims. So how did how did these changes of you know in this first uh, first half of the 19th century um, affect this relationship? And, and what major changes do we see um, either in, in in the countryside or or in the urban center in Kazan, for instance? So this is one of the places where I really try to depart from what I think are the existing narratives on. Um, on Tatar, Volga, or on Muslim, Muslim history, the Islamic history in the Russian Empire. Um, to me, the early part of the 19th century is this moment when you have, and if you're looking at Europe, I mean, think of everything going on in Europe in the first half of the 19th century, right? From the Napoleonic Wars to the sort of, that's really when industrialization starts to ramp up and urbanization. It's happened in the 18th century, but it really takes hold of the 19th and this real global trade of what I would call of really commodity, commodities, common consumer goods. These are things that are happening around the world in the early 19th century. So it's going to affect Tatars directly as merchants. Instead of carrying rubies and silk uh, and spices, increasingly they are going to be carrying mass-produced teapots and plates. right? And those aren't coming from China and Central Asia anymore and India. They may be coming now from um, often from England, from Britain, uh, less often from France or the Netherlands or uh, German lands. And so this is a story to me that just is not at this point, was not in the historiography at the time I started writing this book. And to me, this is where this is where modernization really begins. I mean, if we think about how we tell the story of German nationalism, how we tell the story really of modern Russia. Um, certainly when we talk about everything that's happening with Britain in terms of literature and arts and identity and empire building, this is all happening in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, and so that really kind of, again, it helps to be in a lot of positions and teaching and things where you have to teach outside of your area and make sure you rethink your own area. Um, 
I began to realize kind of looking through the sources and really lining up timelines and biographies, how this was affecting uh, my particular community that I was looking at. And so that really, the other thing was working through the manuscript collections. At some point I started making catalogs of manuscripts on my own in Excel. I began then to actually go through because they were in Excel and I could begin to make graphs and looking at where manuscript production actually peaks. And it's in the first half of the 19th century. Which again, you know, raises all sorts of questions about what's going on. Um, so it's those sort of combination of things is trying to think about the Tatars in this in global history rather than locally, and then bring in these sort of evidence of cultural change that you see in the early 1800s. That really made me rethink what was going on in this period. And so suddenly in the book, this it's not 1880; it's really 1800 to 1850, where Tatars quote unquote learned to read. Um, and where they began to engage with what we would consider kind of modern, manufactured, globalized economy, from samovars to um, <clears throat> to sort of accordions, which are kind of two of the bases of Tatar culture, um, to books and mass literacy and sort of Islamic new forms of sort of fundamentalist Islamic revival. Uh, so that. Again, it was a chapter that wasn't even in my dissertation, really, but it became really important in the book. Yeah, and then uh, at the same time, you have this chapter, I think it's the fourth chapter, which is um, on kind of the rural gentry. Um, and you're looking at kind of the rural nobility and the education system before this before the late 19th century, which is typically described as this era of reform. Um, so I'm curious, like, w with this chapter, what what were you trying to show and, or, you know, what kind of significance does this focus on the uh, rural education um, before the 1880s? Uh, tell us about the kind of global history of Islam or, or the way that, that the Kazan Muslims um, fit into this kind of global history. So actually, again, like this is as with the previous chapter, this is really trying to restructure the sort of old, Jadid um, Muslim reformist narratives we have coming out from the mid 20th century, really through, if you go all the way through, through to Mustafa Tuna's Imperial, Imperial Russia's Muslims, this narrative is still there that sort of, I don't want to be cruel and say nothing happens until the 1860s, 1880s, but that sort of the modernity shows up. Um, and here, so in the, the in, I have the chapter where I look at broadly, globally, what's going on in the community, then I zero into these. These particular not nobles, they are um, they're clergy. Uh, they're most they're largely Sufi sheikhs or ishans, um, and then their followers. Uh, and my purpose with looking at this is to this is where I begin to really take the Jadid narrative apart. And this comes back to what I talked about at the beginning of the lecture, the the interview of this sort of dichotomy between. This is a history about Muslim reform and modernity and secularism and nationalism, or this is a story about really continuities of Islam and traditional culture and this, whatever happened with these secular um, modernist reformist people was sort of an, an epiphenomenon. Uh, it was fleeting. It didn't really percolate down and it was somehow detached from what was really going on in the rest of Muslim society. So when I was talking about trying to navigate that kind of labyrinth, I ended up cutting through the middle. So what this, what chapter four does is it really sets up 
the argument for the rest of the book. This is not a Muslim reform. It's not something that is separate from the broader history of this community. Um, it is not secular. Uh, it is not modernizing because in some sense, modernity has already been happening earlier, decades before these folks come in. Um, and actually a lot of the, even a lot of the things that reformers claim to introduce into Muslim, uh, the Volga oral region into Kazan Tatar society, the teaching of mathematics, the teaching of astronomy, um, vernacular language teaching, all of these things are already going on decades before the quote-unquote reformers even begin their careers. Um, and so this, you know, the, the purpose of that chapter is really to set up this group of people who on one hand they are pushed kind of into positions of social prominence by their ancestors' sort of uh, collaboration with the Russian state. On the other hand, by this burgeoning global world industrial economy. And then um, they are forming the foundation out of which this reform will emerge. And a lot of the reformers are going to be their grandchildren and their students. And suddenly Islam kind of Islamic culture and modernist reform are not two different things. These are um, the reform is really growing out of the broader Islamic culture and responding to it. Uh, and sometimes simply appropriating from it and reinventing uh, things that are already um, happening well before the reforms begin in the 1880s. So does that mean that, you know, when you're looking at these reformists later on, that, that se it seems to me that what you're, you're suggesting is um, that for them, uh, claiming to be modern or, you know, claiming that, that you have kind of a monopoly on being modernity uh, of being modern in this context uh, is, is more political than anything. Yeah. Um, it's a way, yeah, okay. it's a way of calling people out, um, you know, by essentially saying we're on the right side of history. You're on the wrong side of history. Uh, and they, um, I, I think I say that, but kind of a weaponizing of the concept of modernity. Uh, but they're not in terms of the, the world being modern or not modern the world is modern by 1880, you know, they're all living in the modern world. Uh, it's not as, and this has really been a flaw in the scholarship on often on central Asia is that not all of it, but um, especially a lot of the earlier scholarship on Muslim educational reform, you kind of have this sense of you have pockets of modernity and then pockets of pre-modernity coexisting as though you can kind of step across spheres, even in, um, Mustafa Tuna's book, you have this sort of arrival of European modernity, as though it got on a train and like trucked over to Kazan in the 1880s. Um, and again, for me, there, there's multiple purposes to kind of disentangling and debunking this. As one, it doesn't make sense, right? With the way in the way that we talk about modernity in other parts of the world, we talk about modernity in general in other historiographies. But two, um, you know, one thing I've always been very uncomfortable with with that narrative is that it becomes about sort of really not about Tatars or Muslims anymore. It's about Europe and sort of the entire world waiting with bated breath for Europe to show up at their doorstep. Uh, and so that's sort of where 
um, you know, by restructuring these chapters this way and talking about kind of these encounters earlier with what we would definitely call modernity, um, although it's not yet polemicized. Uh, and then bringing in these, um, you know, the rise of this gentry and all these things that they're doing, kind of making the point that, you know, it's not so much the society, if you will, that's changing in this period. It's the discourses that are changing. And in the 1880s, you have a polemic about modernity that comes into the picture. You have now modernity being used as a rhetorical device by a group of people trying to push a particular set of agendas about social, uh, social reform, cultural reform, and ultimately theological and Islamic legal reform. Um, and then using sort of the modernity trope as a way of saying we're right, you're wrong. But if we're going to begin to write a whole narrative about and modernity arrive, what we're ultimately doing is simply reproducing the uh, the discourse of our historical figures rather than, you know, analyzing or contextualizing it. And so from here on out, I kind of want to follow it chapter by chapter because I think there's kind of a thematic um, and somewhat chronological progression going on here. So in the... the I guess the chap chapter following this, which is called knowledge, history, writing, and becoming colonial, you kind of look, I think this is where you start to really look at the emergence of this distinct uh, Volgo-Euro or Bulgar-Tatar identity. And I, I was curious, like, how, how does this come about? Um, what, what do these different words mean, Bulgar or Tatar, at that time? And what are the main factors that lead to the um, the emergence of this identity as, as kind of a discourse itself. Bulgar identity really is kind of say codified by the early 19th century. And they kind of, there are bits of it roaming around earlier. Uh, and Bulgar identity, we call it Bulgar and they call it Bulgar because it focuses, as Alan Frank has already discussed in, I think at length on the, uh, the coming of Islam to the Volga Ural region. And that, uh, to the city of, or the kingdom of Bulgar. And um, <clears throat> so you see the words Islamic or Muslim and Bulgar, sort of Bulgari used interchangeably really from the late 18th century um, to describe people of this region that by this time is running from kind of the Kazan, uh, from Kazan and the Volga River Valley out into the, um, the south of Rals. Um, so that's an idea, and it's not really, it's not a national identity in the way we would understand it. It's more of a regional confessional identity. But this sort of provides, the concepts of Bulgar and Bulgar Muslim provide a way for, I think, especially these ulama that have been involved in this expansion to talk about their community as an entity, as it's beginning to, as it's emerged and expanded. What happens in, um, by the mid 19th century, really starting with Faiz Hanav in the 1860s, carried through by Mar uh, Shabadin Marjani in so the 1880s, especially 1880s, 1890s, um, is the transformation of that concept from an ethnonational community into what will eventually become what we think of as the modern Tatar national, Tatar national, or Tatar nation, sorry. Um, so, I mean, what, 
what's happening there. But for me, what's, what's most important about this shift is this is a shift about um, categories of knowledge. This is a shift that's all about um, repositioning oneself in the colonial world. And um, again, it's coming back to sort of these polemics. You have up to Marginese time to call yourself Bulgar was not at all controversial. But Faiz Hanif and Marjani do through turning to archaeology and ethnography and all these things that they're participating in with um, various Russian and in the broad, I use that Russianian in the broad sense because some of these uh, ethnographers and archaeologists are not ethnic Russians, but they're working, they're working in Russian. Um, <clears throat> they, they come forward with this new body of knowledge. Why can't we use this to talk about our community? Why can't we use this to talk about Islamic law? Uh, and sort of the Bulgar-Tatar split there becomes about what is what is the nature of our community, but what is also the nature of knowledge itself? Uh, are we to look to sort of this international base of knowledge that contains a lot of things that are not Muslim? And that's where kind of Marjani pushes this Tatar identity as something based in that sort of modern science, quote-unquote modern European science. Uh, do we turn to some? Uh, do we turn only to knowledge that is, you know, traditional and Islamic and coming from sources with which we've been familiar for a long time? That's the sort of Bulgar um, Muslim identity, as that sort of beginning now to come. It's, it's the, what it takes on the meanings it take on, takes on in these new discourses in the second half of the 19th century. Um, <clears throat> so. And as you move forward, you'll see increasingly to be a Tatar nationalist is before the Soviet period is to be associated with a whole bunch of other things that really feel like they have nothing to do with nation. Um, with certain kinds of Islamic legal reforms, certain kinds of theological stances, um, socialism increasingly by the early 20th century. Uh, and sort of to identify oneself more as, well, then you have the vice of sea and the movement, the warriors of God movement, which I won't go into. Um, but in general, in a traditional perspective, to be associated with Bulgar is sort of to be also supporting these longer standing traditional modes of Islamic law, Islamic theology, um, and ways of thinking about oneself in, in one's community in relation to the empire. So, um, <clears throat> You know, I think that's how I would explain what's going on in that chapter. And so in, in the last couple of chapters, I mean, you do bring us right up to 1917. Um, and obviously there's a lot going on between the, the kind of 1860s up until 1917. But I'm curious, like, how do the, um, the how does Russia's conquest of Central Asia and this kind of... Um, I guess there's kind of a paranoia or a fear about um, what's happening to the Islamic world as as these um, you know um, Muslims in the in the Volga Ural uh, region would see it. Um, how does how does what's happening globally or even within the context of uh, the Russian Empire's um, expanding frontier um, change the change dynamics within this? Um, kind of social milieu um, in the last years of the empire. Um, I, I see that there are, you know, profound social changes occurring. So I was wondering if you could kind of give us a picture of how things are developing um, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Well, this is um, really an effort 
to, uh, I've made an effort here to try to put this into the context of both what's happening in the Muslim world and in the larger, we could say, non-European world. Because especially once you get to the 1890s, early 1900s, you're increasingly are going to dig up articles in the Tatra press about China, about Japan, about Native Americans, about the Boers in South Africa. It's, you sometimes come across things, you're like, how do you even know where this is? You're like in Belabite, right? Um, but the... Um, the colonial context here is really important. Once you hit the mid-19th century, the Islamic world sort of up to that point hasn't dealt with situations where it looks like Islam will not be, you know, its own space and Islam has really been on retreat. Um, and again, if you're looking at, if you're looking at India, yeah, you're going to push that narrative back a little bit into the, into the 18th century. Uh, but through the first half of the 19th century, you have a couple of contradictory things going on in many parts of, of definitely the Muslim world, arguably the world as a whole. You have the rise of these sort of um, commercial elites, uh, people who are not kind of old aristocracy, or maybe they were, but they have now tied themselves into the global markets. And per locally, they're doing very, very well. On the other side, you've seen sort of the faltering and gradual collapse of the sort of old Islamic empires of the, that had dominated the early modern period. And the and empires and states, when you get to Bukhara, yeah, Bukhara is more of a state than an empire. Um, so uh, I think this is also really where chapter four to kind of five is a really important shift. So kind of the rural gentry in chapter four can be very assured of where they stand. They have money, they have status, they have security. Islam has worked for them. The imperial system has worked for them. Everything is good. What happens with the conquest of, I would argue, with the conquest of Bukhara in the 1860s is that suddenly it's, it's not all okay anymore. One of the main reasons that these people, the, the gentry, quote unquote, could justify living and serving in the Russian state was that there were Muslim lands, quote unquote, adjacent to them. And then they could practice their religion as well. But as long as there were Muslim lands somewhere else and Islam was being sort of practiced properly somewhere else, it was sort of semi okay to be living and even economically doing well in infidel lands. By the mid-19th century, the Islamic world, if you're a Muslim, it just looks like it's disappearing. Um, India is going to, going to end up completely under the authority of uh, the British at the end of this period. Um, Iran is going to end up pretty much partitioned, although officially it still exists. The Ottoman Empire keeps losing pieces of its territory. All of Central Asia ends up being conquered. All of um, all or most of kind of most Muslim territories in Africa will end up under colonial rule, uh, and this I think is sort of an existential crisis for Muslims in the Volga Oral region. Is sort of there's not now a place where Islam exists and it's good, and you can turn to turn back to that. It's I think for younger generations following that group that I detail in chapter four, it brings up an ethical question as well: is that who cares if you're doing well? if sort of your money has been made off the blood of your co-religionists. Um, and that's a tension that really comes through in the second half of the book, because increasingly you will have Tatar Muslims, Tatar Muslim scholars will say this is not really okay. Uh, what the Russian state's doing to Muslims in general is not okay. 
um, <clears throat> what the colonial world is doing to Muslims is not okay. And if we don't take some sort of action, everything that we kind of supposedly stand for as a religion is going to be gone. Um, and so that's where I think kind of, again, chapter four for me is really the turning point in the book. It kind of sets up the world that is then going to create the conflicts this throughout the rest of the, um, of the narrative. But I would say that's where kind of the broader situation comes in. So then when you have what we call the Jadidists, I mean, they're not really one group, but you have multiple, you have people challenge, like Gabdur Sidi who doesn't make it into the book a lot, but who um, are challenging colonialism in general, wherever it may be. You have other scholars that are talking about the need for social, cultural reform, people questioning what happened that led us to this point, who is responsible for sort of Islam being gradually erased from, from the map. Uh, then as you get along, you know, as you have that conversation progress and you notice some kind of the book, the generations get younger and younger as you move ahead. Um, the youngest people coming back and really pointing at that old gentry and saying, it's your fault. And you've exploited the Muslim world and you've exploited us and you've exploited your neighbors and we're all going, we're all going down right now because of essentially what you did out of your own self-interest. And so again, I would, I kind of point out here, I said, this is not objectively what is happening, but this is how the people that are having these discussions perceive what, perceive the 19th century and how they then discuss and respond to the 19th, the late 19th century. And I'm curious about how this uh, plays out for the kind of uh, relationship between the Russian state and and um, you know the Kazan Tatars, because you know in the in the conclusion you kind of you make an interesting argument about kind of the irony of Russian expansion, right? You say that the seeds of the of um, the Russian government's real and imagined crises in the late 1900s um, and the early uh, you know, 20th century, um, be it the Kazan Tatar fanaticism or pan, you know, fears about pan-Islam um, or perceived Tatar influence over other Muslim populations, um, kind of, um, you know, and this this itself is is the re result of uh, mutually ex executed uh, colonization of uh, the southern Urals, western Siberia, and the northern Kamek's uh, Kazakh step, um, you say that this actually um, kind of there's kind of a twist of fate where where this relationship that once um, both you know both were kind of working um, in in harmony um, eventually splinters, and I'm curious what that looks like um, you know in the last two decades of of the Russian Empire, and then how this plays out. Uh, during the year of revolution in 1917. Yeah, well, there are, um, I guess, yeah, the answer is in that first sentence. I mean, my point there is that essentially in the 17th and 18th century, the Russian state empowered and or permitted these non-Russian, non-Christian agents to go out and essentially do its will. And, you know, as early modern governance works, um, the center was not terribly powerful. They actually relied very heavily on these people to take independent action uh, to, to you know, build imperial presence. The result of that is that they create these sort of communities um, and spaces that are not really 
fully under Russian control, or they're sort of under Russian control with the cooperation of the local non-Russian population. Now, again, this is much more of an existential crisis than it is an actual crisis. For, you know, for most of the history, down to the revolution, most Muslims in and around the Kazan area are either loyal to the state, or at least they are not agitating against the Russian state. Uh, you have a small, smaller, more vocal group that did do. Um, but this, the issue is that from the moment that sort of those Muslims ancestors were given power to create these spaces, the state, the government allowed for the creation of these spaces, the spaces came into existence. And it's down to 1917 um, as the Russian government becomes more paranoid about what its Muslims are doing. And this is based both on its experiences in the Caucasus during the um, first half of the 19th century, the Caucasus Wars, um, as well as interfacing sort of with Britain and France about problems of the quote-unquote Muslims cause and pan-Islamism, fanaticism, um, all of these things come together to really make uh, Russian officials by the mid-19th century question the reliability of the people they've sort of handed the keys of the empire over to. The problem is that the keys have already been handed over, the structures have been created, the Russian state itself did not invest in the creation of or the training of cadres of people of Russians, right, who could work in these communities, speak these languages, understand these cultures. And so sort of the irony is what makes the empire work is this trust. What ultimately tears the empire apart for me, at least in this region, is this trust. Is that ultimately the trust doesn't hold up, but it's created a world where neither party can really fully function without the other. For Tatar's part, again, they're looking at what's happening around the colonial worlds, combined with sort of missionary activities in the Volga, the Russian state's really aggressive efforts to get into non-Russian education, um, you know, that really kind of all causes them to question sort of their choices and the choices that their grandparents have made about serving the Russian state. Um, and But again, ultimately, that they kind of don't step back and say, well, without the Russian state, we as a community would not exist. Just as for the Russian state, like without these Muslims, and the things that they have done to sort of create the physical sort of space of the empire in the 18th century. And then really the economy and working with livestock trade now in the 19th and early 20th century, this are nothing would exist. And I think that's the irony is it's like, you've got, it's, it's a married couple. They were sort of in love with each other in the 18th century, but the 20th century, given all the circumstances that have changed, they sort of can't stand each other, but they're, they're welded together. Yeah, and I like I like that you're bringing up the point that you know this is maybe what what tore the empire apart in this specific region, and I think that that that's a good reminder that you know there's not one, not necessarily one history of of the the fall of the empire, but actually, yeah, you know, I mean, it all technically happens in in 1917, but you know, it plays out in 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 uh, different ways in different places because of these like. Uh, different dynamics that that have been occurring for a long time. So I think that's like an important point and one thing uh, to I, take away. One thing that I was I've been I really worked with in this book is you know, and again, this is part of these older debates about was this relationship between empire and minorities peaceful? Was it conflict conflicted and fraught? 
was it sort of voluntary and cooperative? Was it coerced? And I mean, what I hope to get across to this book is that it was all those things at different times. Right? There were times where it worked, the relationship works really well in certain places with certain people and everyone's on the same page. There are times when the relationship completely falls into shambles uh, and um, it's just barely functioning anymore. But a lot, but it's, it's a relationship that evolves over time and in relation to circumstances locally as well as internationally. So um, that's what I've tried to do here. Yeah, I think I think that you you managed to do that well, and um, yeah, I, un unfortunately, I think we are uh, nearing our time here today. But I think that's kind of a good point, perhaps, to end on. Um, and I wanted to thank you again, Danielle, for for sitting down and, and talking about your new book. Um, you know, it was a fantastic read, and and there's a a lot of material covered. So I must say, I'm I'm, I'm very impressed. Um, and just for the listeners, um, if you like what you heard, uh, once again, we're talking about uh, Tatar Empire, um, Kazan's Muslims, and the Making of Imperial Russia by Daniel Ross, uh, out now with Indiana University Press. And just before we leave, I wanted to give Danielle a chance to tell us about maybe, I think you actually just mentioned perhaps another project you're working on, but I'd be curious to hear more about that if you don't mind. So yeah, my current project, and this has been thrown a bit into chaos by the, the current situation with uh, COVID. Um, my current project is looking at the rise or the industrialization of meat production in the Russian empire from the 1860s. I would actually like to take this all the way through the Soviet period. That feels a bit ambitious. I don't know if that will work. Um, but really to do this as a comparative with what's happening in the U.S. meat industry um, over the same period. And um, this really grew out of this first book, and I talk about, I think, some aspects of it in one of my chapters with the Husseina family, who we talk about them as merchants, but they're really primarily uh, livestock sellers, meat packers, and wool, uh, kind of wool merchants. Uh, and what I... Uh, what I really have been looking at as I've gone deeper into their documents, this was a golden moment where I actually found internal documentation from the company in Tatar, which shouldn't exist, and yet it does. Um, what you begin to see is that you have uh, the same sort of development of vertical integration in the meat industry in Russia and the United States at exactly the same time. And so that's what my new project is going to be looking at, is sort of how these two industries develop. Um, and actually, they're closer in scale than you might imagine. The U.S. is a bit larger, but um, I think Russia, by the early 20th century, they, they at least rank themselves as being in second place for beef and beef exports after the United States. Um, but I'll be looking at how those two industries evolve, but also kind of how, again, the vagaries of international politics sort of shape um, the different evolutions. And I mean, in a different world, looking at the way things evolve, we could be talking about Russia as the great meat producer today and not the United States. So I'm bringing back in the, the ethnic aspect and that a lot of the people that are involved in the meat industry uh, are not Russians. They're the, a lot of them are Kazakhs that are involved in uh, animal raising. Uh, at least in the 19th century, a lot of the um, commercial and entrepreneurial class are actually Tatars and Germans. Um, and others, 
rather than um, ethnic Russians. So it brings back to that, you know, that theme of Russia as a place that's been built by people of multiple nationalities and religions. Uh, but also what's really new about this is this is much more about Russia than about the region. And it's also bringing in a strong comparative development with the U.S. So that's what I'm working on now. That sounds like a fantastic project. And, um, you know, I hope if it turns into a book, you'll come back and uh, talk with us again. So um, thanks again, Danielle, uh, uh, for for sharing uh, your time and, and, and talking to us about your book. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.